Please to Second uh, Timothy chapter one. I'll I'll share. You probably know this about me. I'm of the faction that says just just do the message, and uh, you know, we'll figure out the kids later. But I won't do that. I won't start my watch now and say I told them an hour. I give them an hour. Uh, we did a lot of teaching in the Lord's table. In Second Timothy chapter one, we'll just start at verse one. We surveyed the first paragraph last week. We'll review it. Paul greets Timothy, his beloved son in the faith. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, through the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. We constantly talk about God's promises and trusting God on the basis of his promises, mixing his promises with our faith. But uh, this is how Paul thinks of the whole thing. It's a promise, the life that God gives us, the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Who wants to learn to evangelize someone based on any opener to the apostles' letters except like Galatians? Who wants to learn how to do this real quick? Thank you for that show of hands. One of you said yes, so I'll do it for all of you. You can show anybody in the world that God loves them by opening any epistle from Paul and reading this greeting, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. How does that work? Well, this is what God wants, according to the Apostle Paul, for Timothy. It's an easy correlation to take you to what God wants for the world in John chapter 3 and 1 Timothy chapter 2 and other places. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. God wants mankind to have his grace, his mercy, and his peace. You can open any of Paul's letters. Where would you find Paul's letters? Well, you flip to the beginning of your Bible and go to the table. No, don't do that. You find Paul's letters by pinching the last eighth of your Bible. And there I was in 2 Thessalonians, right? It's the end of the Bible, except for the general epistles in Revelation. And the epistles just take up a little space. So you go to any place in Paul. There I was, 2 Corinthians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is in Corinth, to all the saints. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. What God wants for mankind is his grace. And yes, it is always written to Christians when Paul says this. But you, a Christian, can take, the, take anybody and show them this is what God wants for and say us. This is what God wants for us. He wants us to enjoy his grace and in 2 Timothy 1, his mercy and his peace. It's just a little technique. You're like, uh, how many times in my evangelistic experience I've been able to even open a Bible to show someone that? Okay, then you can do it as a conversation, you know, uh, uh, the meat that you're going for in the conversation. Do you know what God wants for us? It says in every one of Paul's letters, grace and peace to you. He wants you to enjoy his grace and experience his peace. I have gratitude is the correct or the, the literal translation of verse three, because this isn't what I want. Joel, if I mess you up, tap on the, tap on the, the analog screen up there. This is what I want. Doesn't seem different to you, but it's real different for me. He says, I have gratitude. Caris echo. I have grace to God. This is a really important thought. I want you to get hold of the way grace is used. We translate it gratitude here in your English Bible. It says, I give thanks. 
but it doesn't say I give anything. That's not the Greek idiom. That's not how you say it in Greek. That's how you say it in English. The way you say it in Greek is you say, I have grace toward God. That is a foreign idea to us that you and I would grace God. But it doesn't mean what it means when he graces us. It's like blessing. When we bless God, it's not like when he blesses us. When you have grace toward God, it means you are acknowledging the grace you've received from him and you're grateful. Therefore, paraphrased, I thank God. Do you hear it? I just want to unpack that a little bit because it's in Greek that it was originally written and that thought is important. It ties directly when you say thank you to God, it ties directly to the grace of God that you've received a gift. And that's the very essence of grace. So I have received his grace and I have the appropriate response of related word gratitude. I have gratitude to God whom I worship or serve Latruo from my forefathers in a clean conscience as unceasingly I have the remembrance concerning you and my supplications night and day. Could somebody please tell me what is a supplication? Can we slow it down pastor and just say it in simple English? Let's make a rule. No words more than eight letters or two syllables. <laughs> Prayers. If I say prayer the way I grew up in, in East Texas, it's two syllables. Prayer. Prior. Even, even better. Mississippi. All right. Supplication is a specific kind of prayer. You might have heard me say this before, especially in the emergency parachute verse of Philippians 4, 6, and 7. When you need peace that surpasses all understanding because you're in a, a crisis, you go to Philippians 4, 6, and 7. That word supplication shows up. It shows up here. It means urgent, specific requests. That is supplication. I have urgent, specific requests. So he remembers Timothy, his son in the faith, and he makes his supplications, his urgent, specific requests for Timothy night and day. While I'm longing to see you, remembering your tears so that I may be filled with joy. Why would Paul be filled with joy? Not because of Timothy's tears, but because of seeing him. Remember last week, we talked about the biblical doctrine of Christian co-location. We want to be together. It's natural. It's supernatural. The desire for face-to-face co-location. It is God's design for our interaction. And it is a cause of Christian Holy Spirit empowered joy that we would be with the like-minded assembled together. I am always on cloud nine on Sunday morning when I can be with you together. And I have to confess that I have an experience and I pray that you do too, that I do not have when I'm not assembling with you. I have an experience of joy and fellowship and harmony and encouragement and strengthening and refreshment that I do not have when I'm by myself at my desk in the word. I have a different experience in that condition. And that's got a valuable joy to it also. But this is part of the richness of the full meal that God has in the spiritual life, the co-location with one another. He longs to see, the, see Timothy so that he can be filled with joy. But Timothy is in trouble. Timothy is in tears. Timothy is having trouble. Timothy is perhaps liable to suffering the shipwreck of his faith. And Paul is going to shore him up. Continuing this thought of remembering Timothy and asking God on his behalf, he re receives remembrance. Lambano plus 
hupomnesco, uh, to remember and or having a remembrance. And it is to receive remembrance, which is a really neat phrase if you think about how remembering works. Remember, remembering something is an active and a passive thing. You try to call something to mind. Do you remember um, putting your shoes on yesterday morning? Try to think about that. To do that, you have to reconstruct. Mike's like, no. <laughs> shoes. You have to reconstruct the context in which you put shoes on. I'm, I'm immediately thinking of either my bedroom or the steps leading down to my front door by the shoe rack. I'm thinking of the, like, when did that last situation happen? I'm actively reconstructing the event in my mind to try to recall it. But as I recently experienced on finding my wallet, having lost it for two weeks, if you lose your wallet for two weeks, your prayer life really goes through the roof. <laughs> and I don't mind telling on myself. I don't want to just do that, but it's right there in the drawer where I, where I keep it. I just couldn't see it for two weeks. <laughs> Pastor, you drove to church a bunch of times in that condition. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I was willing to face the consequences if I got nicked, but receiving remembrance is, a, is, a, is an active and passive thing where when I did find my wallet, oh, I put it right there. What celebrations and hallelujahs did I proclaim to God because he brought to my remembrance that, yeah, you put it in this drawer, it's right there. Receiving remembrance of the genuine or sincere faith that is in you Now, by the way, you visitors, I'm translating. This is the Greek into English, so it sounds stilted and kind of difficult. Read your English Bible, please. But I'm trying to give you a little bit of a technicolor of how the Greek thought occurs. I I try to do this all the time. So this this sincere faith, this genuine faith that's in you, first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. Now I have been convinced that it is also in you. And I often will translate the particle de as now, but it doesn't have to be now, but it's the furthermore. Now, now furthermore, your parents, your grandparents, your grandmother and, grand- and mother had it, have it. And, and I'm convinced furthermore that it's in you. I would, in fact, I would translate this today. I would say, furthermore, I've been convinced that it is in you. Well, verse three says it's in him. Sorry. Verse four says it's in him. The, the sincere faith that's in you in verse five, which was in your mother and grandmother, and it's in you. For this reason, I'm reminding you to rekindle the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And we talked a little bit last week about spiritual gifts, and we're going to talk about spiritual gifts a lot more as this epistle unfolds. It's not the key passage on spiritual gifts. That would be 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, Romans chapter 12, and Ephesians chapter 4, the key passages in the New Testament on church age, spiritual gifts, special enablements of the Holy Spirit, for you to love the body of Christ and build it up. Special enablements of God, the Holy Spirit, which he's given you, that as you grow spiritually, you're better equipped to love the body of Christ and to build it up. Paul knows Timothy has a teaching pastoring gift, and he knows that it is sputtering out and the coals are going out. And so you have this really interesting phrase, this really interesting uh, word, anazoporeo, 
anazoporeo, which is three words thrown together, ana from again or above, zo is like alive or zoology, and poreo, poreo, fire. So bring the fire back to life is literally the etymology of that word. I've translated rekindle. Rekindle is kind of a Hallmark card sort of word. So uh, the New American Standard translates it, kindle afresh. Okay, but the point is the fire's going out, Timothy, and you've got you've to get this thing blazing back. Now look at what we're learning about the dynamics of the spiritual life, your function of spiritual gifts, and your personal responsibility. Think about what's being said here in terms of your spiritual life, your spiritual gifts, and your personal responsibility. You can let it burn out. Doesn't mean you lose it, it means it's not functioning. Just like walking by the Spirit, do not grieve or quench the Holy Spirit. Quenching the Spirit is stated in 1 Thessalonians 5.19. Do not quench the Holy Spirit of God. That is to put out the fire of his work. And here, Timothy is in danger of the fire going out. And Paul says, you need to rekindle this fire afresh. I learned a new skill during the COVID lockdowns. Most people did. I'm going to go ahead and say, Brendan, Learn to do 50 push pull-ups or something at one, one setting, however many it was. It's a ridiculous, superhuman amount of pull-ups for somebody over the age of 25, way over the age of 25, right? Brendan and I were comparing notes the other day about our COVID skills. Brendan learned, uh, taught his body how to do pull-ups. Once upon a time, I did 11. <laughs> that was the pinnacle <laughs> for me. Well, I did sort of the opposite type skill. I learned to smoke meat. <laughs> Brendan's strengthening his muscles and I'm cooking uh, meat from other, other animals. Anyway, I learned watching YouTube videos and using a, a, a Texas style side smoker stick burner. I learned how to smoke meat. And as long as I can get hold of YouTube, I can do an okay job of it. Turns out you don't have to be that sharp to get a good smoke ring on a brisket. You just have to go through a process and babysit the fire. But boy, does this word jump out at me now after all the time I've spent trying to keep the fire just right. Because here's the thing about smoking meat. You have to keep the fire low enough that it's not cooking the meat quickly. For example, the brisket is a slow cooked meat because of all the fat inside. And you have to slowly bring it up to temperature because in that slow process, the fat inside breaks down and makes it so delightful. If you fast cook a brisket up to temperature, you won't be able to eat it. It'll be tough and nasty. But if you slowly smoke it with some good hard wood, like some pecan wood, or it's pronounced pecan, or a hickory or mesquite or something, you get a really uh, delightful um, fattening result. Or, or no, we're on keto. It's okay, you're keto. So, um, so the problem with the fire is keeping it at 250. It's easy to get the fire up to 500. It's, it's easier to keep the fire at 350 or 400, but you've got to keep that fire down to 250. And you know what happens at 250? It kind of wants to go out a lot. And you can only have so much charcoal and wood in there to keep that fire just right. And it's really a frustrating process. Well, you know, this Christian life is not a sprint. You can't keep the fire at 500 all the time. That's how you sear your steak, but you only need two minutes or so per steak to get it up to 500 to, to sear the steak. You got to have a consistent, steady, flowing fire in order to run this endurance race that is the Christian life. And Timothy is sputtering. You know what happens to a brisket when the fire goes out? Nothing good. 
You have stopped a process that needs to continue in consistency. See, I should, there's a whole like theology of brisket for me now. The consistency principle, you just keep it steady. If the fire goes too hot, it messes it up. If it goes too low, it messes it up. Consistent, stable temperature for only 12 to 15 hours. All right. And, and that's temp, that's maintaining uh, observation of temperature and feeding it uh, just enough and so forth. And so dampers, you got to keep the dampers going. It's a big process. Some of you are like, just buy a pellet smoker. I know, but it doesn't turn out as good. Anyway, the point is that the fire is everything and it is active and it takes fuel and it takes intention. And uh, off of my illustration, back to the text now, do you and I understand that our spiritual fire can go out if we don't choose to stoke it, if we don't choose to kindle it. Do you know that in discouragement and despair over bad outcomes that we experience, probably Timothy in his ministry in Ephesus, he probably, we read first Timothy, there's a lot of problems you're going in there, Timothy. And now Timothy's bruised and he's damaged and he's hurt and he wants to quit, apparently. What does he need to do? He needs to choose to re-engage. How do you rekindle your spiritual gift? It's really easy. It needs fuel and it needs a choice to engage that fuel. And the way you engage the fuel that God has for you is you open God's word with an open heart, seeking God to know him on his terms. God, I want to know you. So help me know you. Don't don't open the Bible as a legalistic practice that, well, I've got to do that because it's today and I haven't done it yet. You need to engage in some disciplines to set yourself up for success, yes. But don't open the Bible as this perfunctory routine thing. You open the Bible as you open your heart to God and say, help me know you. You've promised me, Father, that if I draw near to you, you'll draw near to me in James chapter four. I'm submitting myself. I'm humbling myself before you, God, that don't let me have my ideas. Let me get hold of your ideas and think them with you. And let me be what I'm supposed to be as a product of your word. That is to rekindle the gift afresh. And there's something else you really need to do to keep this fire with enough oxygen, enough fuel to where you get it going in, in a good blaze. Here's how you do it. You have to choose to trust in what God's word says to the point that you do what it says. You have to believe in God's word consistently enough in your, through, over time that when it comes time to do what it says in believing, I still do it. That's the argue, argument of James chapter 2 about showing my faith by my works that's written to believers. He's not talking about whether people are going to heaven or hell in James 2. He's talking to Christians who need, you and I, who need an ongoing vibrant faith that in the moment as it's time to restrain my anger or my lust or my whatever, as it's time to say no to me and yes to God in loving this person self-sacrificially, that in believing what God's word says and entrusting him enough, I do what he said. That's, that's how it's the Christian spiritual life. Timothy with a good going, uh, a blazing spiritual life, he'll be functioning within his gift because he'll be teaching the nations to do all that Jesus has commanded. We talked about how Timothy got his spiritual gift in the early church with the apostolic era. Paul could lay hands and say, pastor, and that's what's happened here. And today the Holy Spirit does it directly and we don't have apostles. We have their word for God did not give to us a spirit of dahlia. 
Dahlia is the Greek word. It's fairly rare in the New Testament, but best translated, cowardice. Timothy has tears we've already heard about. He has a spiritual gift sputtering out that needs to be rekindled. And now Paul attacks him and says, be a man. He doesn't attack him as an enemy. He attacks him as a sparring partner. He's a coach. He's in his corner. And he says, you don't have any right to cowardice. God did not give to us a spirit of cowardice, but of power and of love and of sound mindedness. The new nature that he put in you when you first trusted in Christ, that is perfectly receiving God's word. It's perfectly designed to receive the word of God and to think God's thoughts and to love God on this account. This is a spirit of power. This is exactly what Paul says in Romans 8. We're not given a spirit of fear. We're given a spirit of power, love, sound-mindedness. That spirit is activated, actuated, empowered, driven by the influence of God, the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God. That's the Holy Spirit with the Word of God in my spirit. That's my new nature in Christ. And that powerful complex called the functioning spiritual life is of power, of love, and of sound mindedness. A key phrase Paul will use. Well, Paul goes from this subtle rebuke, this subtle, hey, we don't, we don't have a spirit of cowardness, cowardice. He goes from that in verse 7 to what Paul wants Timothy to understand. In verse, verse 8 through 14 or so, we have the opening injunction, the opening set of commands that Paul gives Timothy. In verse 8, he says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the witness of our Lord. You who are visiting, I will often put the commands of the New Testament in red just to help you understand these are special opportunities where God tells us exactly what he wants. And by telling us, we're equipped to know exactly what to do. I lose my wallet in the drawer that I keep it in. Okay? And I know I'm not the only one. Some of you will spend an hour looking for your keys and they're in your pocket. They're just me. We're broken and we're weak and we're silly and, we're, and we miss things. And we need God to say, hello, this is the command, do it. Now, I, I do believe the commands of Scripture in the New Testament are like God telling you, hey, would you please go to the bank with this key, open the safe deposit there, box there, that's two commands, go and open and then whatever you find in there, take it out. There's three commands. Go to the bank, open the safe deposit box, and take whatever you find in there. And what you find in there is all the riches that God can possibly cram into you. That's what God's commands are. He's commanding you to cash this billion-dollar check. Do you want to go ahead and cash this check? Would you please go cash this check? Would you do me a favor and have every blessing that I can give you? That's how God's commands work. And that's what he's doing here. Do not be ashamed of the witness of our Lord, nor me his prisoner, but suffer together. Suffer together. There's a big old compound word here. Su kako patheson. Patheson. This is together, evil, suffer. All thrown together, as Paul will do with some of, some of his technical words. 
and it means to suffer together. He means with himself. In your English Bible, it would be in, in italics, with me. But it's suffer together. We're, there's a harness that you and I are pulling in the same work, and you need to join me, and it hurts. So come on back in. The water's fine, is what he's saying. Suffer together with me. Timothy's off in a corner. He's in a heap, hurt. I just need a break. Get back to it. Back to work, you. I'm hurting too. This is the letter of Paul being poured out as a drink offering. He's going to tell us in this letter, I'm about to die. It's time for me to go. And my life is a sacrifice for God's glory. That's how Paul's thinking of his life. And he's in prison and Timothy's not. So suffer together in the gospel according to the power of God. I, I put that exclamation mark. You can say, well, there's no exclamation marks in, uh, in Greek. And there aren't. They're only in English. We have exclamation marks. You have, it's an editorial decision how to punctuate. It always is. But suffer together in the gospel. So don't be ashamed. Shame involves cowardice and they don't like it and they reject me for it and I'm hurt for whatever reason. They've gone after me and I'm suffering this opposition. And then he goes, as we'll close, into an elaboration on who God is. According to the power of God, you suffer with me. And this is God who saved us with a holy calling, called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he gave to us in Christ Jesus before, literally before times of eternity. What did Paul just do? You were visiting. I want you to take a gift from me to you out of love from the Lord Jesus Christ. You who are not visiting you probably already have this gift, but I'm going to share it with you again. Look what Paul just did with Timothy's tears and his cowardice and his sputtering spiritual gift. And whatever is the reason why Timothy's hurt and he's been opposed and he's in danger of being ashamed of the gospel and not suffering in the harness. And Paul's saying, get back in the harness. What does Paul do? He takes Timothy's temporal suffering and he reminds him of the power of God who saved us for eternity, for an, an infinitely good and holy and righteous purpose. He takes Timothy from here and now, and this feels this way, and this hurts this way, and he points him to God who saved us by his grace, not our works, that it's God's calling, not ours. It is according to God's purpose. He has a purpose in all of this, and it is his gift, his grace to us in Jesus Christ, and he did this from eternity past. He takes you out of time and he puts you into a perspective of eternity, of your salvation. And so because I've got that eternal perspective that will grow in you if you'll submit to his word, because you adopt that eternal perspective, you can put your temporal time-based momentary sufferings in perspective, whatever it is, whatever challenge you're facing, whatever hurt you're getting externally from the world, in the gospel ministry, like Timothy, whatever inner temptation you're suffering from the privations of your sin nature and the world calling to it, this is suffering, but you haven't yet suffered, writer of Hebrews says, to the point of shedding blood. You haven't resisted the point of shedding blood in this fight against your sin nature. Whatever the temporal thing is, remember, it's temporary. And God's salvation and his calling is eternal. And it's an eternal purpose with an eternal work of Christ from before times of eternity. But now this purpose has been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who on the one hand abolished death. When he died for our sins, he abolished death, but on the other hand, illuminated life and immortality through the gospel. 
If you go back to the cross, like we sang at the end of our communion service, keep me near the cross. If you go back to the cross and you think about this historic event 2,000 years ago with this eternal forevermore, eternity past to eternity future consequence on your life, on your destiny, on your identity, on who you are. If you start thinking God's thoughts eternally about who you are and what you're for, you can bear up with that power of God and that courage that he supplies. And if you don't, if you won't go eternal, if you won't think about what your eternity is about, you can't. You can't adopt God's perspective about the problem and you can't bring his power to bear on it. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this eternal life. We must abruptly conclude because of the time commitments that we've made today. But Father, we're so rich in this grace and mercy Father, give us this eternal perspective. Those who are visiting today, Father, if this is a new thought, uh, Father, I ask that this would be something that would captivate us and drive our lives always back to your word, always back the power of your spirit to the cross. Father, if this is an old thought, strengthen us by it, refresh us by it. If we have sputtering spiritual gifts, then like Timothy, Father, help us rekindle these by choosing to obey the command to do so. Father, we know that there's no shortcut here. It is the word of God empowered by the Holy Spirit in our human spirit. It is our availing ourselves of what you said and trusting you. Strengthen us, Father, to be prioritized this way, that we're here for you. It's about your work and it's an eternal priority. Father, if there's any here that don't know Jesus Christ, this is all um, interesting but uh, irrelevant. I pray that, that they could come to know that Jesus died for them on the cross. We're told in the scriptures that only those who believe in Christ have the life, but we're also told that Jesus died for the sins of the world. And so, Father, thank you for this clear message that Jesus died for our sins, all of our sins, so that we could have eternal life simply by trusting in him as the Savior, the one who paid our sin debt on the cross. Father, we praise you for our so great salvation, which we proclaim today, for the ministry of the gospel you've committed to us, and the empowerment to carry out that ministry. Don't let us waste our week our days, our minutes, our lives. Father, as we open our hearts to you, let us live in accordance with your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. amen.